field trips at the Holocaust Museum. And uh, the Holocaust Museum, if you've been there, it's four stories and you get to the top and then you kind of start there and it starts before World War II chronologically and then you begin to kind of wind your way down the four stories spiraling down and by the time you get to the bottom you're at the the end of the war after the war and you're looking at like the Nuremberg trials and things like that you kind of spin your way down chronologically and the funny thing the funny thing um, the really interesting thing was these kids that uh, were on field trips as I was getting more and more disturbed as I went down uh, were getting more and more numb they, they didn't have the ability to register what was going on, the volume of the atrocities, these were real people that weren't able to make the connection and so pretty soon they got bored and they started just goofing off and getting more and more irreverent and it was just a really interesting thing and I remember getting really like frustrated inside and feeling like there should be a rule, you know, that only people over the age of whatever could go to this place or that only kids could go with their parents, but I thought this whole field trip thing was stupid. Um, and I think that's the way this whole human rights thing can be for us, even as adults. That the way the Holocaust was for these kids, um, the sheer magnitude of what's going on in the world today can lock us up, shut us down, and we have this kind of defense mechanism with things that we can't assimilate. We, we slowly begin to push it to the outside so that we can, can just continue on. We won't exist in a state of confusion for long. That's just the human way. And so we push it out. And, um, and so I want to look at some of the smaller things. And it's interesting, there's a guy who was a scholar of evil and suffering. And so he went all through Europe studying what the Nazis had done because it was sheer evil. And this guy was so depressed and his life was just um, spiraling downward just because of his emotions and all the, the things he was filling his head with um, at his PhD work with evil and suffering that he came across this story from a village in La Chambon, France. And I'm probably butchering the pronunciation. But what happened in this little village was that the church got together and they rescued all of these Jewish people. Um, punishment of death, everything else, that they, they could have died for it, and they rescued all of these Jewish people. And Philip Halley was so overwhelmed by that kind of what had gone on in that village that he went down there and he lived there for um, a number of months and basically interviewed survivors and all this other stuff. And then he wrote this book called Lest Innocent, Innocent Blood Be Shed. And it's a fabulous little book. But here's the interesting thing. I remember um, about two years ago when I was reading this, uh, what struck me was in the introduction that the first ever fan letter he received, that this is what it said. It was negative. Leshambon wasn't even in the war. Nothing happened west of National Route 7 in southern France. The obscurity should be an insight to you the author. Reverend Trockme, the leader of the village, has a minuscule number of equally eccentric kindred spirits. And the letter went on to say that only vast forces like great armies make history, make and break human institutions. The story of a few nonviolent eccentrics 
who did nothing to stop Hitler's armed forces mattered only to a few mushy-minded moralists like me, says the author. And this devastated him. Um, and so he thought, wow, I'm going to get a lot of letters like that. He goes on to say, wow, that was, that was just a, an isolated incident. Um, but he thought, man, I'm going to get all these hate letters from uh, survivors of World War II that think this book is, is, is wrong in some way. And so he prepared an answer, and he wrote back on a postcard, bought a bunch of postcards, was ready to just send this to anyone who wrote him a letter like that, and it ended up being just this one person. But he says this, um, real people with their own proper names saved real human beings in that village. And these precious few people count. And he concluded his postcard with, thanks for your point of view. Still, something really happened there. Um, and I love that. Something really happened there. And here's a couple of small things in the last three weeks that really happened here at Antioch. Um, going back a month, Courtney and all her studies for this human rights series ran across a story of uh, a, a brothel where women were being held captive down near San Diego. Okay, Immigrant women that were being held captive in a brothel down in San Diego. Okay, And there had been a raid on that and it had gotten kind of busted up and it's near her dad's church, her dad's church, a church of thousands. And so she basically called down there and told her dad's church, hey, do you realize this stuff is going on in your backyard? And, and they, they really didn't know and they basically... Um, are birthing kind of a movement to reach out to these kinds of women down there in San Diego. And that really happened. Um, after the first week of our series, one of our high school girls who's up at Summit comes up and got Dave Rogers' information. She came into the office and tracked down Dave Rogers, who was just up here being interviewed, tracked down his information, um, and she says to me, uh, we have a little shack in our school where we sell like the school sweatshirts and this stuff. And she goes, and the, the teacher that runs that goes to Antioch. <laughs> and I'm going to get ransomware stuff sold in our, our school little shack. And she goes, I need his number. And so I, was like, I was like, wow, that's really cool. And so I was talking to Dave this morning about this girl. And he's like, wow, yeah, she called me. She said, she's... She's amazing. And she now wants to try and get a competition between the three high schools in Bend to raise money for ransomware, where it's like a competition to see who raises the most kind of a thing. And knowing this high school girl, she'll probably accomplish that goal. And that really happened here. Um, Chris Cass, who works for Fox uh, News, KTVZ, um, doing uh, the uh, TV station, not the news, but he works for the TV station, basically went in and told the news people that he's friends with about ransomware and sold the idea on them to where Thursday night there was a news piece in the local Central Oregon News on ransomware. And they've already had phone calls and orders placed because of that TV ad, or not TV ad, but the, the story that basically ran in the evening news. And that really happened here because of somebody at Antioch that cared and just is using their circle or their sphere of influence or the creativity that's, that's, that God has given them and doing something with it. 
And those little things are dominoes and they, they fall into other dominoes and things begin to happen. Um, somebody came forward last week uh, with a big gift and so one of those administrators uh, in the, the office over there is paid for for a year because somebody stepped forward and, and gave the money um, for us to be able to pass on to ransomware. And those things really happen here. And I know we can get numb to this. I know we can think of just how big it is and, and what can I really do over there? What, what difference can I really make? And um, I, I think those are real emotions and real perspectives. And it's pessimistic. Just like the fan letter, the negative letter. And I think somehow we have to get these snapshots in our head of good things and good moments where people act on faith and accomplish something. And we take these little snapshots like postcards and we flip, we flip them over and we write on the back something really happened. And we start to file those away. Um, that's what I'm excited about. That's what I want to see happen. And so if you remember where we started this whole human rights series, it was with the recognition that because of the sheer enormity of it or our own ignorance or, or whatever's going on, that we don't do what we should do. There's a verse in Jeremiah, and it's interesting. The king is kind of being taken to task. And... The prophet is basically comparing him to his father, who is King Josiah, who is this amazing, wonderful king. And it says this, Does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? Cedar being the ritzy home-building material of their day. Does it make you a king to have all your money? Did not your father have food and drink? Yet he did what was right and just. So all went well with him. He defended the cause of the poor and the needy, and so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord. See, God is saying that, don't you understand, when you will do what I want you to do and to, to, to have my values in my heart for the world and the needy and all these other things, instead of exhausting yourself on being rich and having all these other things, don't you realize I'm going to take care of you? Don't you realize it will go well with you? And so in the middle of our fear of letting go of what we think gives us significance, of, of the risk of, of praying the prayer that Dave Rogers prayed, in the middle of that risk, God says, no, just do what I said to do, and all will go with, well with you. And so if you remember, I used the analogy of the Titanic. And so I want to um, show you that clip right now, and maybe it'll drive the point home. They'll swamp the boat. They'll put us right down, I'm telling you. 
You knock it off. You're scaring me. Come on, girls. Grab an oar. Let's go. Are you out of your mind? We're in the middle of the North Atlantic. Now, do you people want to live or do you want to die? I don't understand the one of you. What's the matter with you? It's your men out there. There's plenty of room for more. And there'll be one less on this boat. If you don't shut that all in your face. What scares me is the role I'm in in my life is, is sitting there on the bow of a boat. Um, that's the role I'm in in my life. And, and let me be brutally honest with you, um, pastors struggle greatly with the whole idea of um, rallying their congregations to take the boats back to the people in the water. Um, they're blowing the whistles, they're saying return with the boats, and pastors struggle greatly. You want to know why? Um, because pastors do this thing, we stomp out campfires for fear of wildfires. We stomp out campfires because campfires can turn into wildfires. And so if we get the congregation going and stirred up, what about the worship pastor we need this year? And the children's ministries pastor? And if, if, we, if we so rally the church towards this cause, what if it ends up um, capsizing our little boat and we no longer have the resources that we need to, to make budget? And, and Antioch's in that spot. And so you, you know why I know the pastors struggle? I haven't talked to any other ones. I've just looked in my own heart. And I know that I struggle. And... Where I have to go with that is to believe that God is big enough to take care of our needs and to take care of the needs in the world. And if we're moving to take care of the needs in the world, that God is big enough to support us. Remember what it said to the, the foolish king who is not willing to let go of all the stuff he's hoarded and and the prophet is just saying, don't you get it? Your, your father, Josiah. He defended the cause of the poor and the needy. And so all went well. And that's what it means to live by faith, right? And so, sitting in the front of those boats, um, the challenge for pastors and leaders and elders is that in the face of our own self-interest, we have to trust God and go and give and sacrifice and risk. Um, so here's the interesting conclusion uh, to my thoughts on this whole series. Um, the atheist, the French, athe uh, the French atheist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre um, one of the leading existentialist thinkers 
basically, he wrote a book, uh, a novel called No Exit. And the last line in this novel, this play kind of called No Exit, and it's this fictional tale of like kind of three people waiting after death, like in this holding room or whatever. And the, the final line is, hell is to be looked on by other people. And what he basically was saying there, the whole existentialist philosophy that he had was that man is radically free. We are our own unique individual. We always have freedom. We have the freedom to choose how we're going to respond even if we're straight-jacketed. We are radically free. We're radical individuals. And that's where our identity is. That's where our uniqueness is. That's where our value and our worth is. And when people look at us, it objectifies us. We are subjects, okay, and that's the value. But when people look at us, it reduces us from a subject to an object, and that's hell. And so hell is to be looked on by other people because it diminishes my individuality. Now contrast that with what George MacDonald, um, the, the Scottish pastor, said in the late 1800s. And George MacDonald said this, the one principle of hell is this. I am my own. I am my own. And so when Jesus prays at the end, right before he's going to die, he prays and he doesn't say, God, help give these people the strength to maintain their own unique freedom and individuality. Image is everything, God, and it's hard work. And so give them the strength to keep their MySpace fresh. And give them the, the insight to know which pictures and which things that they can do that would really maximize self so that their unique individuality, their subjectivity would remain fixed and intact. God help them. It's a lot of work. It's exhausting. We're Americans. It's exhausting. We know it. Rather, Jesus prayed this. Um, God, it's going to be almost impossible for them to let go of that and actually find unity and community and oneness. God, help them with that. Because the whole goal here is that someday they might be, they might be like you and I are. And that's of, of one mind and one spirit completely united and so God give them that strength and so Jesus understands that our joy and our happiness and our our value is tied up with others that it's other people that in some sense make us important there's those movies where there's only one person left in the whole world and there's no value outside of of we and community and so Jesus says, it's better to give than to receive. Proverbs says, um, he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. A generous man will prosper. And so Jesus turns that complete paradigm on its head and says, it's counterintuitive, but when you start to give and when you start to love, you're going you're to find true significance. That's when it's going to be heaped up on you and you're going to receive the value. And you're going to know that you are where God would have you be. You're going to sleep well at night. You're not going to scratch your head in a grass hut in Africa. You're going to have peace of mind because the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and mercy and, and all of those wonderful things. Um, C.S. Lewis says this, Joy is the serious business of heaven. I love that. 
Joy is the serious business of heaven. When we go and the self is removed, it's burned away like chaff, and we're finally all together, that's joy. And it's going to be some serious joy. As if it's our whole business kind of joy. And so, um, this human rights series hinges on this for me. That it's not about us. That we need to um, somehow not be afraid of campfires that might turn into wildfires. That we don't worry as leaders about our own stuff. That we really look at other people and we really get excited that joy is to love, joy is to give, joy is to meet the needs, joy is to see the smile in others. That that's where it's at. And so we tried to encapsulate this and we wanted to leave us all after this three-week series with something that would continue that whole momentum. And so we thought of these, uh, these bands, these rubber bands, uh, bracelet things. And so we decided, you know what, let's get these made up for the congregation. And we can hand them out on the way out, and we can take them with us, and people will wear them for a week or a month or six months or a year. And if you don't wear things like this, put it on your mirror, put it in your bathroom, anywhere where you're going to see it. Uh, use it as a, a collar for your chihuahua. I don't care. Um, but, but, but somewhere where it's just going to speak back to you, and it's going to have the symbolism of this whole series. And... And we couldn't get away from, like, Dr. Phil um, lines. <laughs> and so we just printed simply on them, um, it's not about me. It's not about me. And as we wear these, that maybe it would be something that would point us to others and we would realize it's not about me. Now, Courtney wanted something different. She wanted it to say, people are dying, get over yourself. <laughs> um, which I think was too many words. Um, But may we realize that there's something marvelous here. I mean, don't miss me. That joy that you hunger for, that happiness that, that's on your mind all the time, God put that there. It's a homing beacon. And it's pointing you to give so that it can be satisfied. Happiness isn't wrong. Joy isn't wrong. It's just that we're buying into this lie that we're going to find it in these other things and it's futile and that's why Americans are so depressed. And so don't get down on happiness. Get down on ignorance or laziness or fear or lack of faith. And get excited about the opportunities that God has given us. There's whistles blowing. Bring the boats back. Let's pray. Father, just may you take this congregation and may you just put us in the middle of the fire. Refine us again and again and again and again until we're not maybe the biggest church in this town, but we're willing to just charge hell with the squirt guns. That we're willing to sacrifice, that we, we have faith that's undeniable. And in all of that, just I do pray that you would fan into flame our joy. That that would be unmistakable. And that others might really get it by looking at us that the way to live the good life 
is to follow you and to serve others. It is better to give than to receive. And, and Father, we cannot outgive you. I just pray that you'd help us believe that, own it, understand it, know it. Let us know that it's not about us. It's not about me. In Christ's name. As you, um, as you head out right now, we're a little late on your way out, there's offering buckets uh, by the doors, and you can put those cards and the surveys in that. And then by the door, there's a guy's, uh, there's a gal's like kind of small band, and it's also for the, the girly guys like me, which is about 80% of us, because um, the big ones are really big. Um, just don't tell anyone it's the girls' one. You're all right. Um, and then there's big ones. So there's green and there's yellow. I didn't understand that that was duck colors, so I'm sorry. Take them in isolation and it won't be that bad. Um, but those are available. Grab a handful. We've got extras. And just put it somewhere where God can speak to you and remind you, hopefully, what he's stirring in you in these last three weeks. Those are available on your way out. God bless.